Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott Al. This is Amber. And on today's show, we talk about something that's never been a topic on Ghostly Talk. Satan. Satan. And mostly Anton LaVey. Yeah. And the influence he had on Satanism, the occult. Okay, pop culture. Pop culture. Yeah. Everything. And I hope in this show that Anton LaVey is a little demystified yeah. a bit and brought down to a slightly more human level because there's a lot of preconceived notions, I think even amongst people in the paranormal, that you hear that guy's name and you just go, ooh, ooh, bad guy. He was a bad guy. Just like Crowley. Elster Crowley gets a bad rap for being a super bad guy. And, you know, he wasn't the greatest. I mean, everyone's human. But uh-huh. Anton is a really fascinating character. And if you give the Satanic Bible a shot and read it, you might be surprised at how much of it is quite logical. <laughs> and we explore this and Anton and what he stood for and what he did on this episode. Carl Abrahamson is a fountain of knowledge. Yes. The guy knows everything about all kinds of cool everything. topics, yeah. especially Anton LaVey. And we are talking specifically and promote his helping to promote his new book, yeah. Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan, Infernal Wisdom from the Devil's Den, which mm. we will have linked up on our site. You can get it from Inner Traditions. Their publicist was kind enough to send us a copy, which is amazing. I love yes, thank to get you guys. free books. Thank you so much. And of course, there's a companion film. Which was, it's it's actually what inspired this book, but in 2019, uh, there's a film, you can find it on Vimeo. Vimeo. And it is very affordable to purchase or like five rent. bucks. Uh, oh, rent. I think I paid like nine or something. It wasn't, it What's wasn't. the name of the movie, Amber? It wasn't that expensive. Uh, yeah. It's uh, Anton LaVey, Into the Devil's Den. Yeah. And it interviews all these people that were, they knew Anton because yeah, we're at that. We're interacted in, with him. Yeah. And we're at that part in history where people are still alive that knew him and can talk about him yeah. and give a first person perspective on this guy. And it's not just going to be something you research in a book, you know, a hundred years from now when everyone's trying to write the 23rd biography about Anton LaVey. Uh, so it's a really good documentary that I think also humanizes Anton and it makes does. him feel a little, a little more like the rest of us. And I know we learned a lot from Carl. Oh Yeah. And we hope that you'll learn a lot yeah. from Carl. Carl's official bio, show. Yeah. Carl Abrahamson is a Swedish writer mm-hmm. who is speaking to us from Sweden. Yes. So we are doing this on from a Saturday in the morning. I apologize to listeners that might hear <laughs> the occasional grumbling of my stomach. I'm going to fix some of that, but some of it I, I can't I, fix. I, I have not eaten breakfast. I've only had coffee. Yeah. And then it just... Like halfway through the show, the stomach kicked in. Like, we'll just call it's an infernal growl that you're hearing (laughs) (laughs) while we talk about Anton LaVey. So, just, you know, imagine that's what it is. But anyway, he's a Swedish writer, publisher, filmmaker, photographer, and musician. He has written extensively about a culture, which I love that word, how occultism and hidden ideas interact with our general culture, literature, cinema, music, art, etc. Abrahamson also writes fiction and journalism. He is the editor and publisher of the annual magical anthropological journal, The Fenris Wolf, and the founder of the publishing company, Trap Art Books. Enjoy our show with Carl Abrahamson.
hand a copy of the Satanic Bible that I purchased yeah. in 1995 at Walden Books, mm. and I felt so badass buying this book. I I was I was really? yeah. I'm 15 years old. Yeah. I'm thinking this this isn't. I'm oh, wow wow. Mm. I am a rebel buying this. And I would bring it to school, mm-hmm. and between classes, waiting for the teacher to start, I, I'd open it up, read it. Mm-hmm. I think a part of me, I'll, I can admit now as an adult, yeah. kind of wanted to, other students to see me reading the Satanic Bible. And sure enough, this one kid, Dan, in my social studies class, tells the teacher, Mrs. Rowe, Amber's reading the Satanic Bible. <laughs> and I, she kind of just looked at me like, ugh, yeah. whatever, yeah. you know. And... I always felt this book was my most. Uh, what would you say? Uh, I hit. I hit it because I didn't it's want my ta- grandpa. It was a taboo. Taboo. It was scary. Yeah, I didn't want my people. grandpa to see the book. I didn't want anyone to take it. Yeah. And the shocking thing about this book and Anton Lavey, who wrote it, mm-hmm. I thought like this was just going to be some kind of extreme, crazy novel full of. It's not. No. It's not. And as my ninth, my ninth grade brain's reading this, I'm going, this makes sense. This all makes sense. This I guy agree. isn't that crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, I kind of like some of these beliefs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have on the show today, we're, we've never had on Ghostly Talk, we've never talked about Satanism. We've never talked about Anton LaVey. No, this is something totally new this for us. This is something totally new for our listeners. And we have on the show Carl Abrahamson because he's got a new book out called Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan, Infernal Wisdom from the Devil's Den. And Anton LaVey, I know, is a very polarizing figure in pop culture, even the occult community and in history. And I think this show is going to demystify him a bit and maybe even make him appear a little more human. Yeah. Than what the media like to uh, consider him. So, yeah. welcome to the show, Carl. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. It's it's great to be here. And it's so funny when you mentioned that thing, you know, being in uh, in school and being fifteen and sort of clutching your copy. Uh, I I just had this uh, flashback to the it's one season of uh, Californication. If you remember that, yeah, you know, yeah. where, where his daughter is going through her Satanist phase and she also clutches her copy and reads her copy, like, <laughs> well, religiously, it's kind yeah. of funny, actually. Yeah. But that just shows already back then, I guess, I can't remember when that show came out, but you know, already then he was sort of, he was drifting into the mainstream in a way, as so some kind of iconic figure uh, that uh, teenagers certainly could relate to. And I'm not sure whether you're aware of that, you know, this is one of the most recent seasons of... Um, uh, American Horror Story. I'm not really too keen on that show, but you know, one of the the recent seasons actually had Anton Lavey appear. You know, a figure that looks like him and presents himself as Lavey. So that's another you know uh, example of his becoming more and more present in, yeah. in uh, mainstream culture. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, coming back from the dead. Could we just talk about his character a little bit, like who he really was? Because you know, I mean, again, it's this idea that I think people have this this. Thing, this thing in their mind about him, right? Well, uh, everybody changes uh, in life, you know. No one is the same age 15 as age 70 or mm-hmm. and somewhere in between. But but I think when I met him, the first time I've, I met him was in 1989. And by then we had uh, struck up a conversation before that, or a correspondence before that from 1988. Uh, so that was one year before. And this was at a period in his life that would turn out to be like his last decade. And he was sort of in, in um, failing health, but still vital, you know, um, not a recluse, but 
reclusive, uh, hanging out at his own beautiful black house, the Vic- famous Victorian house in mm-hmm. San Francisco with Blanche Barton, his partner, and and uh, just taking care of. Um, so minding his own business and taking care of his own business, meaning the Church of Satan and his you know writing projects and playing music and just enjoying life basically. Mm-hmm. And the difference. Um, I can say that I can talk about the difference from the earlier, more extroverted versions is that that the person I met was very, very uh, curious, very warm, generous, very welcoming because he had this thing. He he wouldn't let anyone into his, what I call the devil's den, uh, unless there was some kind of, you know, uh, pre-approval in a way and most of the people that I uh, talked to uh, in the book uh, and in the movie that sort of uh, was the precursor of the book uh, they came in at about the same time as, as I did mm. and they they were all movers and shakers they were all doing things uh, that yeah. he liked and was interested in and I was um, making music I had this uh, occultural journal called the Fenris Wolf that still exists today, mm-hmm. that had just come up with its first uh, issue. Uh, so he, I think, was curious about, you know, who is this weird guy from Sweden? <laughs> and I let him in. And, and I had also made that record uh, called, uh, a song called Sweet Jane, mm-hmm. which was like a tri- tribute rock and roll song to him and Jane Mansfield and to the relationship uh, they had. And he find, found that quite amusing. Uh, so in that sense, I came into to, uh, his environment and saw this, you know, um, I don't know if he was wrong to call him like a senior citizen, but he was, you know, um, uh, taking it easy, mm-hmm. be, still being vital, you know, mentally and physically too, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the earlier version that people are mostly uh, familiar with was the one that he sort of uh, part him, and you know, was also something that in part he created, kind of a media persona, mm-hmm. the 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 guy who launched the Church of Satan in 1966 and later on wrote the Satanic Bible that came out in 1969. You know, he wanted that scandalous attention. He wanted that provocative um, persona to be clearly visible and audible, because by doing that, he could um, present his philosophy and, you know, present what he, you know, called the Satanic religion. And and so thereby you had a person of, of uh, great controversy, you know, coming from San Francisco in the, the mid-60s, however, not at all being in favor of, you know, peace and love and, you know, like the, the mostly well-known characters coming from San Francisco at that time. And at the same time, he was not a staunch, you know, like arch-conservative guy. This was a guy who favored Satan, not not some, you know, conservative Christian guy. Mm. So he was right in the middle of things and he was strong enough and he was well strategized enough for him to have that persona make an impact that he more or less controlled meaning you know his uh, iconic figure the way he looked dressed uh, the way he uh, uh, presented his ideas um, that was sort of etched into the well parts of the american general psyche you know when people talked about satanism there would be either the staunch christian oh i'm afraid of the devil or if you were somewhat savvy there was this oh it's that guy in san francisco and then immediately people sort of had this gesamt picture or icon of this uh, bald guy with a goatee who sometimes was dressed in a cape with plastic horns and stuff kind of you know uh, kitschy in a way, but at the same time, like you said before, what he said actually makes sense. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that everybody uh, thinks that. I think most people, I mean, many people think that, you know, oh, he's just like a, 
an e egotist masquerading as something you know magical or religious but at the same time this this early uh, persona stuck with him for good and bad it was good while he was doing it because it gave him the attention fame and fortune and then later on i think he got more and more tired of it in the sense tired of explaining having to explain all these things again and again the books could do that for him so oh. he worked on that uh, so and the person that i got to know uh, was just like um, uh, <laughs> an an unnormal uh, normal being human being who was uh, friendly and curious willing to share of his time and his interests and and we found you know points of interest uh, mutual interest and uh, a resonance that was not so much uh, based on occult lore or even you know diabolical history or whatever, but more like in, in in movies and special kinds of music and basically cultural expressions that carried this um, spirit in a way that we can call now uh, satanic because he defined it by not only by his books and talking about the philosophy itself, but also because of these incredible cultural memes or seed that he passed on through his writings, through his dedication lists in the books, and to us, the people who were there, like, you know, for that last decade, because there were many, many, many discussions, and actually part of I would call it like uh, the premise of, of the entire project for me was that uh, did the others who were there at about the same time uh, feel the same way I did, yeah. meaning yeah. that there was some kind of dissemination going on between the lines. And everybody said, yeah, sure, I felt that too. Meaning that what they talked about and the resonance they struck up, he made sure to plant stuff uh, that uh, I assume he thought that we would take on and that would be a kind of a, again, what you would call uh, in your world, like a paranormal, uh, possibly like a, a supernatural slash psychological uh, legacy. Yeah. Not in written form, not in books, not in these sort of traditional media, but in the brains and sinews of people who he knew were movers or shakers already yeah. and just they were going to have a long and productive life and could thereby carry this sort of black flame uh, further. I watched your documentary, Anton LaVey, Into the Devil's Den uh, this week, mm -hmm. and I felt like it it clean I felt good watching it. Great. It, it makes me happy. <laughs> it, like honestly, I'm I'm listening to these people who were heavily influenced by Anton, who had moments like you did where you're in the black house, you're hanging out, you're talking about art, uh music, movies, all these things everyone has a you know a commonality in in the same interest. And mm -hmm. You hear th these people talk about Anton in a completely human way, mm -hmm. that he was normal. He wasn't just some guy sacrificing people, eating babies, doing <laughs> blood rituals, all this, all this like obtuse stuff that people believe about Satanism. Yeah. And yeah. you, I even get the idea. I like the clips that you have. I, I think it was from the 1980s and he's older and he's just got that penetrating stare that I think he nailed. <laughs> yeah. It was his signature look. And he's he's sitting there talking and he says, they, they, I think he's probably asked, like, are you a happy person? And he has this great quote where he says, I'm a very happy man in a compulsively unhappy world. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. It, it really is. <laughs> it, like, that, 
just like I rewound it. I'm like, I have to watch him say that again. <laughs> there was something about it with, like, like I said, that stare, that gaze, his voice, his manner. And I was like, mm-hmm. damn, that, oh, if that's not just everybody's struggle, trying to be happy <laughs> in a compulsively unhappy world. Yeah. And I felt there, as I'm watching this and I'm hearing what people remembered about him, what they liked, I was like, he, he was sort of motivational. And then mm-hmm. when someone towards the end of the documentary mentions like, well, call it Tony Robbins or whatever you want, but, mm-hmm. and I was like, this is it, this personal development, like, I would never have kind of connected that with Anton before watching your documentary, that there was this element of personal development, you know, be your best self, do what you want, as long as it doesn't, you know, hurt anybody else, and just go out there and, and do it, achieve it, believe it, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, and so yeah. it was, no, it's, yeah. And absolutely, I mean, when you're saying that, I think that that sort of comparison that uh, Ruth, the woman in the film, who said the thing about uh, Tony Robbins okay. and these things, that they, and it was also, um, there is this thing, you know, in my standard question that I pose to all of these people, do, do you think that he would have made an impact without the S word, you know, without using Satan as a symbol? And, and there you have it. America specifically is a culture that seems to be in great need and, and has been for a long time of these sort of, you know, self-help books and 10 easy steps and programs of this nature and that nature. And, and that's, you know, beautiful. Anything that can inspire people to become more, uh, let's call it self-centered and empowered. That's a great thing. But he, uh, I think, appealed very much consciously, you know, by design, by strategy to people who were uh, feeling a greater affinity with, let's call it like the outsider personality, people who aren't. Um, uh, it's another voice in the film that says not just the broken toys, but everybody who felt like they belonged to the outside rather than the what's called today the norm core. And and I think that you know appealing to and using the symbol of of Satan as sort of the proverbial, literally proverbial outsider, the one who accuses the the hegemony, the one who uh, points to and pokes and makes fun of. Uh, inert structures and and the status quo that is uh, you know corrupt whatever i see satan in that sense symbolically as part of uh, the organism's immune system it's the thing that might cause pain but it does so in order to uh, make the organism aware that something is wrong in that particular region so that the body needs the organism needs to heal in a way i see it as a very uh, necessary force and it's you know beyond any uh, doubt that that's the the part, uh, regardless which culture we talk about. It's not only in the Judeo-Christian tradition. There's always this kind of trickster figure. There's always this kind of you know uh, benevolent uh, jester or or uh, cynical force that makes people aware of what's wrong with their uh, general culture. And I think also that so he gave the world his his own kind of self-help structure. You are your own God, you know, that's, yeah. you know, quoting, quoting Nietzsche in a way. And that's why I call him in the book also America's Pop Nietzsche. He brought so many highfalutin philosophical uh, concepts into uh, <laughs> what I call in the book also straight into the American TV couches uh, and made people feel that, whoa, this guy makes, makes sense. He's a bit dramatic perhaps, but, you know, it's not exactly what I've been taught. And he could do that because he uh, defined it. And as you say, you know, codified this with such uh, great force 
that you can't look away from it. The Satanic Bible has never been out of print since 1969. There are always new generations coming, you know, buying this beautiful little black, you know, mass market uh, paperback like you did in school. And, and uh, it's just um, something that, that, that young people discover, maybe older people too. And it's not what they have been taught uh, it is. And then you can say, you know, who's this guy who's, who claims otherwise? Well, it's a guy who spent his life defining, codifying, um, using his precious time and life, trying to explain and disseminate uh, a philosophy. That's really, really very healthy. It's, it's good to be, um, um, let's call it self-centered. It's good to be egotistical as long as it actually helps you and it helps you divest yourself of what he called psychic vampires, people who try to cling on to your thing and sort of um, draw on your energy for their good without giving anything back. You know, just this thing, psychic vampire, it's a fairly commonly used term today, but he actually coined it. And there were many other concepts that he came up with that are now part of, of uh, culture, and I would say specifically American culture. Mm. Uh, and it's fascinating. And I guess he really embodied this kind of uh, symbol of Satan quite well because he was that person who was clearly visible and audible, presented a philosophy uh, not of anarchy, not of sort of tearing down and destroying the, the powers that be, but rather telling individuals that you are your own god you don't have to accept this if you don't want to or you can also accept it if you want to you know giving them um the opportunity to feel slightly more empowered in their own um making of existential choices and i think that's an uh kind of a phil philosophical strain that has been uh, permeating all of human culture uh, more or less in conflict with the, particularly, I would say, the monotheist religions. Not only there are the, you know, other cultures with the even the polytheistic things that ha that can be quite, you know, oppressive. So this is all about individualism, about empowering the individual to be, as you say in America, the best you can be, or as he would say, the beast you can be. <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I, I was on, I forget the guy's name. It was a talk show in the 60s. And the guy was so rude to him. Um, Joe Pine. Yes, yes. And I was watching that this morning. And I thought this was so clever because Anton says, well, the word evil spelled backwards is live. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, oh, I love that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. It, it reminded me of a T-shirt I had also in ninth grade when I had was clutching my satanic Bible. I, I had a Marilyn Manson had just hit the scene, and Marilyn Manson had a T-shirt that said "Believe," and in the center it highlighted "Lie." And I thought, you know, that was another thing that I was like, oh, oh so extreme. You know? Mind blown. So extreme. Oh. <laughs> they won't know how to handle me. But when when he when Anton hit the scene in the '60s, did other occultists? view him with disdain or or any t form of jealousy how did other people that were already in magical circles view this newcomer this flamboyant guy that was just hit you know taken over yeah i i um i can only uh, sort of speculate it's it really a kind of a pet uh, pet favorite uh, 
subject for me because I, I, I like to call myself like a magical anthropologist. I, I like to see how, how magic as a phenomenon interacts in, in, uh, with people and in, in human culture in general. And I, when I say spec, uh, that I can only speculate, I mean is that I don't have any like, you know, uh, extensive evidence. However, I know the scenes fairly well. And actually what happened was that uh, the 60s brought this kind of, um, you know, age of Aquarius kind of explosion of, of a new kind of occultism, but it wasn't really new. It was either a revitalizing of already existing but quite tired strains, like the one called Western, the Western ceremonial magic, uh, as we know it mostly from like the Golden Dawn, that's a famous order that was prevalent like in, in the late Victorian times uh, in, in the UK and also other places. Um, and then you have sort of the Freemasonic structures that have always been strong at this time was sort of uh, becoming a little bit, uh, what do you call it, dilapidated. It's like missing new blood. It was kind of old and dusty and arcane. And then you had the, the Crowley groups that weren't really re-established. I'm thinking about the OTO, for instance, that didn't really make a comeback until the 1970s. Uh, and then, of course, there were other, you know, Rosicrucians and there were, you know, many kinds of things. I would say on the whole, that they did not take this guy seriously. They did not take the Church of Satan seriously, simply because of the fact that he deliberately, by his own design, stuck his head into the hornet's nest that is public media. Mm. He wanted that attention that they shunned. You know, there's a reason, you know, occultism means something that is hidden. And it's uh, today we don't need to hide those thoughts and ideas and, you know, quite transgressive concepts. But maybe those people who were active then, in, let's say, 50s, 60s, maybe up to the 70s, they felt that, you know, we're working in such a high, uh, highbrow tradition. We cannot, you know, debase this by being publicly known, etc. We need to protect our secrets. Something very, you know, uh, pretentious in a way. But whatever, that's fine too. So when you have someone presenting something that is admittedly magical, that talks about magic and occultism, yet has all of these new concepts, and you have a public persona saying, I am this, and my group here is exactly this, then I think it was the, the impact was so strong on them that I think it sort of created a what do you call it in uh, electricity, uh, short-circuiting of, of their way of, of uh, yeah. acting and reacting. Yeah. So I think most of them didn't take it seriously. They thought it was just like a media stunt or something. And it's more interesting what happened later when he was established and the 70s turned into the 80s. And, you know, you had this thing going on, the satanic panic in the 80s and evangelical Christianity and all these things, meaning a stronger counterforce. At that time, Occultism had um, spawned or sort of uh, new uh, plants had sprouted in new generations who were much more pragmatic. They took some things from here and some things from there, creating their own little uh, teachings and structures and groups uh, in a kind of pragmatic, I would say, not anarchistic, but maybe anarchic way. You know, you, you do it because you like to do it. And, and you retain your own individuality by making certain choices. So that was very healthy. But those people, when they grew up, and uh, LaVey was still around, they felt that uh, he's American, he was, he's too popular, he's too well-known. It's almost as if the occultists cannot 
justify or validate their own work unless it's absolutely secluded in some kind of really weird uh, phenomenon, which is uh, they need obfuscation. They need things to be impossible to penetrate. And I can't explain that. It's just a weird. It feel, it's like they don't have any magical power unless everyone else do not understand them. So it's not a matter of disseminating a philosophy. It needs to be so mysterious that the mystery is retained by people scratching their heads, wondering what the mystery is. It's, it's weird, but that's yeah, how I see yeah. it. You know so, what? And he was, he was very clear about things. He said, this is what I mean. Here's the book. This is how we do it. So there was really no obfuscation. You know what this reminds me of is when you find this band that's like underground and no one knows well, about it and it, then it, all of a sudden yeah. everybody hears about it and you're like i don't like that band anymore it's like that that, <laughs> well, that exactly. band yeah that band loses its power you know well i, yeah, think, yeah. I think the it's other the classical you know the first seven inch was great the rest <laughs> <laughs> no and i think what i think you're talking about also is just a it's another way of, it's i call it gatekeeping more or less and i think you know, a lot of people they are gatekeepers and whether whether it be with magic whether it's knowledge and a lot of times it's knowledge i think that's what yeah. it basically is is make it so complicated and so mysterious like you're saying that people will they will shy away from it because they it's too i i can't understand this what is this and that to me yeah. is just it's another method of gatekeeping i think Make yeah, the barrier yeah. of to entry really hard. Barrier to entry yeah. very high, exactly. Yeah. Uh, speaking of music, Anton and music obviously go hand in hand. He was a talented yeah. keyboardist. I love watching the videos on YouTube of him with like yeah. three different keyboards all around him creating this symphony. Just you know, it, I I found it funny and a little ironic that in the '60s, obviously rock is hitting big. Yeah. Uh, it's. And, and, of course, Satan and rock and roll, like, they just seem synonymous like just often. Peanut butter and jelly nowadays. And, yeah. and, <laughs> and he mentions, like, rock is not Satan. Rock isn't Satan. Uh, you know, Wagner is Satan. These, mm -hmm. other, these other people. And I couldn't help but think that was a product of his generation because it's just like our parents growing up and going, oh, that rock and roll, oh, devil's music, yeah. you know. I think he looked at that rock and roll and was like, oh, what is that? Gross. You know, I like my music yeah. from when I was young. And I, I – I can't help but think that maybe had he I, – I wonder if he ever switched his opinion on rock and roll and Satanism because as rock progressed and turned into things like punk and mm -hmm. metal, it, it was always counterculture. And yeah, often, yeah. especially with heavy metal, which we're big metal fans here – it, yeah. it it was it was Satanism and I, the icono iconography of Satanism was yeah. prevalent in lots of bands, which often yeah, yeah, yeah. was a marketing ploy. But yeah. some bands, like you know, they they lived it. I mean, we're wait, Scott, we're right here with a, a Swedish band Bathory, yeah, with a, big a big Bathory flag hanging in our studio here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let, let let me talk about that because yeah. they, it's very very interesting. And first of all, I think you're right. I would say it's predominantly a generational thing. You know, he had his opinions he he loved music so much that he was very sensitive to uh, musical input it was one of his not only something that he loved and you know lived for passionately as a musician but it was also something that he used in his magical rituals as magical rituals not just as an accessory that set the mood uh, so he was very very careful about uh, music and so you have the generational thing where he couldn't really appreciate this sort of young uh, you know people making this loud music and it's so, you know, you can't even hear what they're singing and all these things. Then, of course, you had that thing where 
the devil or Satan became more and more integrated in this sort of antithetical stance, um, which is you know part of it too. And I'm thinking you have you have it in in, in metal in all of these. Um, there's a spectrum, you know. You have the spectrum that comes from fantasy, and I would you know uh, count, for instance, Iron Maiden and these things. You look at their covers what they're presenting, their iconography, and what they're singing about. It's like, you know, being in a teenage boy's room when he's reading um, fantasy and he's listening to this music. And it's an escapistic, compository fantasy um, that's uh, quite interesting, but it's not necessarily satanic in itself. Right. However, he appreciated a kind of, first of all, uh, something that is intelligent, and, and uh, referencing Satanism the way he had defined it, but also kind of musical bombasm in a way. And I'm no, you know, metal uh, aficionado. I'm, I, I don't really know too much about it. Uh, but of course, I've been exposed to it too because I'm of that generation. Yeah. But one of the first members uh, who um, was uh, publicly uh, in this, I would say late the, the latest uh, or the last decade of his life, slightly even before that, was King Diamond, you know. You yeah. have these pictures of, of uh, uh, King Diamond uh, and LaVey at the Black House. And yeah. I remember that. I remember seeing that in even, I think, some some musical magazines. And so uh, later on, you know, Marilyn Manson was there too. Yeah. Uh, we have never been in touch. I actually contacted his, his management uh, for, you know, uh, participating in the film and, and the book. But uh, that didn't work out. But he was there at about the same time as, as uh, I was and the other people uh, who are in the book. And there you have some, you could call it like a crossover thing with, with metal and something that was new at the time, just a newer approach. It wasn't heavy metal, it was some kind of metal influence, but you could have some industrial rock thing and the, the theatrics of stemming from Alice Cooper, these things. And LaVey liked that kind of uh, showmanship and that bombasm. Yeah. Uh, and then whether he liked all the other ones, I don't know. Maybe he was like the rest of us in the sense that we favor some expression if we know that the person is friendly towards us. You know, it's like <laughs> the sort of loyalty of taste in a way or taste of loyalty. Um, but then there were other people uh, who were, were in, involved in other kinds of music, like uh, a great friend of his that I met there at the Black House, uh, Boyd Rice, who had this uh, noise music or industrial music project called Non, N-O-N. And, and his music was a uh, far cry from anything like the 1930s and 40s tunes that LaVey loved. It was just harsh noise with, with screaming, basically, and some, you know. Uh, so that was different. But he liked the kind of impact that these... Uh, weirder newer musicians had and i was actually it was a friend of mine who told me to when that record came out i told you about my song with uh, honoring lavey jane mansfield and the church of satan mm -hmm. and my friend genesis Piorage uh, of psychic tv said i have the address you should really send this to anton i think he would like it and i knew at the time that as you said he didn't like rock music mm -hmm. so i was a little bit afraid he would just you know uh, mock it or something but that actually became my door opener because when i had sent him that record i got a letter back from him saying i greatly appreciate the initiative and jane would be more than pleased so in that sense maybe he didn't listen to it and enjoy the music but he liked the initiative and the sort of the impact that it had and then of course when we come to to uh, a much later thing which was uh, well not really but sort of early 90s you have the phenomenon of 
black metal specifically, oh, yeah. not so much death metal. We had a lot of that in Sweden, uh, and yeah. also you know, black, black metal, metal, of course. Oh, very familiar. But, but the thing is that they had they had a completely different, I would say, a very teenage approach to it. You have to rebel against your parents or daddy. So they had all these anti-lave anti things, even, you know, having that as a logo, some of these Norwegian bands, for instance. Yeah. And I found that that was at, at my height of involvement with with the with Lave and I was working on translating the Satanic Bible and stuff like that. And people were they were always trying to put me in some kind of uh, antithetical position towards the black metal people. I, I couldn't care less. Uh, yeah. I think the I haven't listened to their music for a long time, but I, back then I was already immersed in sort of classical music, and I could I couldn't really get into that music. For me, that was like bad noise music. It wasn't mm. even rock and roll, you know. Um, so in that sense, there's always been a relationship. No one can escape Lave because even if you're anti Lave, <laughs> outspokenly so, you're still connected to the source. Yeah, and that and that's. Totally true, uh, and you're right. And as you're as you're explaining this, I'm thinking about all these different forms of expression, right? And I think about, you know, you know, as we've mentioned, yeah, we're all we're metal people, but all different forms of expression I've seen that that are immersed in the occult. Uh, mm-hmm. I find myself being drawn, and I, I guess I call it a, it's a tone. It, it's something, and and we all have we all get, are affected differently, no matter who you are, by sound for example, yeah, right? Yeah. And like you mentioned King Diamond, for example, and there's something mm-hmm. else going on with that guy, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. obviously we're big fans, but I mean, even his first band, Merciful Fate, for example, if you listen to that music and what he was talking about and how he sang those songs and even how the band played, there was something very mystical just about the sound and at least the way it hit me, how it still hits yeah. me to this day. It, yeah. it, there's a vibration. It's, there's a reverberation about that. And I don't mm-hmm. heavy metal. Yeah. It's that's one thing. It's only one piece of the puzzle. In my opinion, I think some yeah. people online heavy metal, obviously Satan, 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 yeah. but that, that's not, that's not true. We both know that there yeah. are so many other forms of expression, especially when it comes to music that I've heard that are immersed in the occult. As I said, that vibrate with me, even more so than than heavy metal music does. I, yeah. I, I, I'll say that. Amber? You yeah, ahead. absolutely. And I'm thinking also, you know, when we're talking about this, I get this, again, this sort of mind flash or flashback to a band I really liked and an artist, uh, again, Alice Cooper. You know, if you <laughs> if you remember those, those classical albums, they were really fantastic and his shows were like completely over the top. Yeah. And something, of course, that every parent would, hate every american <laughs> parent would hate it yes. and of course the kids loved it but i'm thinking also of how um in a similar way alice cooper um or perhaps specifically uh what's his name vince fournier um the the singer the, that he yeah. involved strains of his own childhood culture in his art in a way yeah. maybe that was the a concoction of the entire band i don't know but anyway, I was thinking specifically of Welcome to My Nightmare. And they made a TV special where it was like a film in a way. Yeah. Like a, well, the entire album is fantastic. And there you had Vincent Price, who was this, you know, iconic horror, um, I would say semi-trashy actor who was mm-hmm. just so phenomenal and so important to generations of kids who grew up with 
famous monsters of film land and early TV and Outer Limits and, you know, all these TV series and, and weird horror movies yeah. and drive-in theaters. So you have this sort of evocation of your own childhood in expressed in your art that is shocking and yet appeals to a new generation. And I feel that's something that LaVey did and maybe that inspired uh, Alice Cooper to, to do that kind of thing because LaVey was all about revisiting your past, not in terms of being like, you know, escapistically nostalgic, but simply to honor it as a magical force. Yeah. Good experiences, bad experiences could be relived again and that's why he was such a fan of, and he conceptualized this thing called the total environment, which could be a corner of your room, or it could be a one room, it could be your entire house if you can do that, which is just like creating like a set design for something, uh, an ambiance or a scene, a scenography that fills you with the most vitalizing sense of power. Um, and he did the entire black house was like a total environment. And that included, you know, uh, also music, movies, uh, you know, conversational topics, books, of course, objects, uh, just being absolutely super designed to uh, fill you with uh, a joy of life and not something that is detrimental or ugly or, or um, I don't know, uh, draining yeah. in a way. That, that's always been one of my secret dreams if I inherited millions or won money is that my home, every room would be a different theme and every yeah. theme would you'd go in there and just feel totally different in each room or each room yeah. would pro provide a certain purpose for whatever you're doing that day because i i know is monday well i like disney world <laughs> yeah. yeah so did he so did he did he really okay yeah I... disneyland and disney world that's exactly a total environment oh where, where, yes you know Walt well, Disney and sort of the, the, the team or whatever, but it was basically his vision. They're creating this world of fantasy that you go into and you, ad you adhere to certain rules, you know, basic rules of behavior that are not so <laughs> hard to, to do. But then you go into a complete world of fantasy. And regardless of, you know, which movie is your favorite movie, the entire place is like uh, truly, you know, it's even called Magic Kingdom. You know, it's, it's, that comes, I guess, from a Mickey Mouse thing. But, but, um, it, Disneyland and Disney World are perfect examples of uh, total environments. And I would say, you know, what's it called? The Universal Studio in um, yeah, in Florida Orlando. also. Florida. Yeah. Florida. yeah, it's also because it has like, um, I've been there and just this thing called, I don't know if it's called Harry Potter yeah. World yeah, or whatever. It's yeah. <laughs> a section of it. that, And it's amazing, uh, especially for kids, I think, you know, to be in this truly enchanted um, fictional fantasy world that is at the same time a reality and then you could say well you know it's just commercialized uh, traps and stuff sure. like that but who cares yeah. it's, it's the enchantment of the kids that matter it's just it's mm -hmm. basically built for for them to to experience this and i, I wish you the best of luck in in your um, designing uh, <laughs> because you might want to start yeah. small you know i said you start with a corner and see how that affects the rest of the room and the rest of, of, of you you know it, it can be uh, phenomenal i've done it many times and I'm, i think i'm I'm constantly working on it, like uh, bringing in certain things and changing things, you know, let's call it some kind of satanic feng shui in a way, yeah. you know, it's rearranging things to see how the energy flows. Yeah, which obviously feng shui, I yeah. mean, the, the concept of, of 
energy in your room and your space and how it affects you. It's, it's obviously mm-hmm. been around for a long time. But no, the Disney thing, it's funny because I, they're even taking this a next step with Star Wars. You can now go to a hotel where they pick you up. It's like you get into a little spaceship and you don't see the outside You're completely world. Immersed. You're immersed. Yeah. immersed in a two-day experience or longer if you have the money. Where you dress the part, you go. It's like you are on a planet somewhere in the starship uh, universe, and yeah. or S- Star Wars universe and starship universe. Starship. I don't it's know. A new what show. It. It's a new. It's a new version. Starship universe. It's the off brand. It's the. <laughs> it's the hotel I'm going to start for you know people that don't have as much money. But <laughs> I, it is true. There, Disney always made that impact. I'm, I'm not like a big fan. You're not going to catch me wearing a Mickey Mouse sweatshirt and stuff like that. But going to the park and being immersed in these environments, like the haunted mansion, me being an you know yeah. an interest yeah. in the paranormal, and I just I would just stare so hard at everything and feel yeah. like Keep well, riding how yeah I want to ride it over Keep and over yep. and then obviously with wanting to incorporate that feeling into my real life how how can I bring some of that haunted mansion feeling back home which I do yeah. own a ton of haunted mansion stuff that's probably the only disney stuff I purchase but <laughs> yeah. 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 um just creating that environment that alters your your mind uh it, Another weird thing I want to bring up, because I didn't quite understand it about Anton, was this idea of his artificial companions. Right. Can mm-hmm. you explain that, what that was? Yeah, absolutely. And it, sort of, it ties in very much with the total environment, because when we were talking about that, and, and Disney World is such a you know a corporate, colorful, uh, commercialized environment, and that's, that's all fair and fine. That's you know the reason why it can exist. Uh, but at the same time, what happened if you translate the the concept to something that is uh, much more personal uh, secret in a way perhaps even sexual i'm thinking of uh, you know people who have their own dungeons or you know play pens whatever um which is not for commercial use and it's <laughs> certainly not for kids uh, and it's just something that you do to 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 feel good yourself or in the company of of uh, you know uh, fellow consenting adults so that's another thing where it's like a power source. It's a repository of, of um, rebuilding or revitalizing energy. And for LaVey, he had, as I said, the entire black house was like a total environment. But just like your desire, he had created different rooms with different uh, themes in a way. Uh, and one in the basement was a, a bar, a fully functional bar called the Den of Iniquity. And there he had... Um, these artificial human companions. These were uh, basically store mannequins that he had redesigned and rebuilt uh, to um, look like people that he had come across, whether actually or just from his memory, uh, people in this bar. uh, And he was playing at the bar. There was a beautiful organ there. There was even a drum kit. Sometimes he had a friend come over and play drums. And there was a bar, an artificial human companion bartender, and there were people who were too inebriated. A woman had uh, one too many and sort of fallen on the floor. And uh, it was weird. So at the same time, it was like a, a loving recreation of something that he had really loved to be in because he worked as a musician at mm. many, many sleazy dive bars in his youth. Mm. Uh, and and uh, for him, 
he liked the artificial human companions. He built many. That was not, as most people, interestingly enough, <laughs> quickly associate with something sexual. You know, you build your own Galatea doll that you you uh, make come alive through your own, you know, projections of desire. Uh, but I, I don't believe that was the case at all. He liked to interact with them, meaning, you know, dress them up, uh, be part of his total environments, uh, talk to them. Um, he has written about that, um, and it's very, very fascinating. It seems like a concept that is now, as with many things he talked about, he was very prescient, you know. And now uh, we have these, um, again, they, they popped up as some kind of, you know, sex dolls or sex toys. But they're more than that. They're so lifelike these days that, that you basically buy another uh, non-sentient yet very human-like uh, companion. And it's big business, just as he um, foresaw. So he was very, very prescient in these things. And I think it's true with uh, many things in technology that it is driven by deeper human desires. I remember so well when, when uh, it was established by the markets that be that VHS would be the the domin, dominant uh, video format. This was in the early eighties yeah. because there were a couple of competing formats, you know, and, and then VHS and because uh, it was the one the system that meant that most distributors of pornography, pornographic films, had decided would would fit them best, you know. So and of course the, what was distributed and sold a lot in the beginning, what drove video, it was pornography. Same thing if we zoom back to like early nineties, mid nineties, and the internet took off you know it was driven by these people who wanted to, <laughs> to make money off pornography yeah. and they certainly did uh, and and uh, so that's interesting and again i don't think with his, with his artificial human companions i don't think that was prurient it was prurient on a psychological level but it was not to you know uh, have <laughs> physical intercourse with them it was to have a f uh, physical psychological interaction with them and and uh, he found it very stimulating he he, uh, he liked to talk to them and um, uh, but I do think most of all he liked them to be parts of these um, I don't know stage sets that he designed for him to be in and feel good in we grow up talking to our stuffed animals and our dolls and we're perfectly comfortable yeah. with that as yeah, kids exactly until we grow out of it and go oh well, they can't talk back to me that's not real like right. no i'm having a perfectly good this thing is soothing me whether it's internal dialogue on my own part or maybe there is yeah. part, maybe there is yeah, part exactly. of it you know and, and also <laughs> think about how people talk to their animals like yeah. to the dogs oh, like, yes you know <laughs> they don't talk back. They don't probably don't understand what we're saying. But still, you're talking to them like they were your fate, you know, beautiful little toddler or kid. Yep. And you go in a completely different tone of voice. And you're so, yeah. you know, it can appear actually quite insane for outsiders <laughs> to look. <you> know? <laughs> we have two cats and that's it. We don't have kids. And yeah. we talk to them all the time. I, I yeah. act like my cat is telling me the yeah. biggest, most intense story ever. And, 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 you know, we have a whole dialogue together, there you go. <laughs> even there if you I'm go. making it up. Well, you know, yeah. it, this whole idea we're discussing here, I, obviously it's fascinating. But, you know, I, I'm thinking about not just, you know, what artificial human companions. I mean, not only like dolls or, or your pets, but even like a, like a vehicle, for example. I mean, there's a lot of people that get, they, they become very attached to their vehicle. And I yeah. know people that they talk to their vehicle, you know, that not – 
Like it's Kit from Knight Rider? <laughs> if, it's, if it's a two-way conversation, that's going to be kind of weird. <laughs> but that'd be kind of cool, too. Um, but, I mean, yeah. people, they they grow affinities for objects, I think. I mean, oh, obviously, yeah. you know, you... you, you you grow attached to that vase you have sitting on your on your your mantle, or you do yeah. become you you grow attached to that vehicle, as I said before too. Yeah. Uh, and you're and you're petting the dashboard. I've done this. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. pet the dashboard. Yeah. In my vehicle. No, seriously. Yeah. That that Lave would love that. He was so uh, he would say that that's ultra satanic because not only because he himself was a, a car aficionado and collected you know old cars, yeah. but that thing where you invest of yourself, your emotional uh, energy into uh, material objects so that they become, I don't know, ensouled perhaps or alive in a way. Uh, and he certainly uh, liked that about any kind of cultural expressions, be it an old song from the 20s, a movie from the 30s, or a car like a spruce goose that never took off like from 1943, whatever. Yeah. Uh, these things that people in general or the market shunned, those are more powerful because they are usually preserved by some, you know, real keepers of the faith in a way, mm-hmm. uh, in pristine examples. So decades later, when when um, uh, like a collector of cars, for instance, drives his old, I don't know, even, you know, a cord car. LaVey had a cord, yeah. for instance. Wow. And you see something like that driving by on the street um, amongst these, you know, uh, Hondas and Toyota Priuses and, yeah. and these uh, hybrid cars. And you see, it's like something from a different planet. It has some kind of power of poetry and force that you simply cannot get from mass market objects. Uh, so he was kind of a... Um, I don't know, aficionado is not a strong enough word. He was really supporting and encouraging people to get into these objects and culture in general. Like, which films do you really, really, really like? Is it necessarily the new Batman that goes on these multiplex things and then immediately ends up um, streaming? Or is it some horror film from 1937 that very few people know about, but that you feel whoa, what's this crazy shit? Because it's not some kind of elitist thing in itself. It's just that it has a different kind of power when it hasn't been tainted and diluted by people's opinions, basically. And if they have an opinion, it will only be, oh, that's an ugly car. I can't drive that. It's not even stick shift or or that movie. I can't understand what they're saying. Oh, it's in black and white. You know, that kind of attitude, it, it strengthens these things. The disdain from from the herd, in a way. Yeah, yeah. Is it true that he had some hand in uh, revitalizing the movie Freaks? Oh, you bet. And I can recommend, I've written at length about that. That's one chapter of the book, the chapter that's called, Maybe We Should Watch a Movie Now. Uh, Because I, I watched so many great films with him, and he, again, I saw it as being at school, in a way, when he said, maybe we should watch a movie now. That meant you're going to take a good look at this movie. (laughs) And, and, you know, he had a great VHS library and, and, you know, it was fantastic. But as for Freaks, you know, everybody loves Freaks. It's an amazing film. And he absolutely had his uh, uh, part to play in that. And it was absolutely uh, the part that made the film have a comeback. We, We can only speculate, maybe it would have anyway. But it was like this. Early on, before Church of Satan, 
he he was well known in San Francisco as a colorful character, you know, great musician, played at bars, had his occult interest and, and worked for the San Francisco police as, as a sort of like a psychic investigator in a way for, for what they called kook calls. But anyway, he was well known. And there were a couple of socialite people, wealthy people. The wife had a... Um, uh, film club and organized film shows and she asked somebody what should we show for this uh, particular festival and they said you should talk to uh, Anton LaVey about this he knows a lot about movies so they met and he suggested you should find freaks because keep in mind also that LaVey began you know he didn't go to, to college or anything he worked sideshow and worked the circus with the big cats, tigers, and he also worked the sideshows. He knew a lot of the freaks. He knew Johnny Eck, for instance, who is in Freak, the guy who has no um, uh, no uh, lower body. Oh, wow. You know, the one who's dressed in a, a tuxedo and sort of moves simply with his hands. He was a classic freak on the sideshow uh, circuit. But anyway, so this lady sets out trying to find uh, a print and she finds one that's been destroyed by some cheesy, you know, cheap distributor and eventually becomes like a detective story. And eventually they found found a print that's good enough. They made a new negative and she started playing that at festivals and, you know, these art house theaters. And then as things turned into the 1960s, it had that revival uh, basically on the art house market. And it's so funny also that... Uh, People talk about the uh, impact uh, the film had on their life and work. I'm thinking of the the wonderful photographer uh, from New York, Diane Arbus, who took so many pictures of freaks, for instance, and weird American people. Uh, she saw that film when it was shown at that sort of early 60s thing. She saw it every night for a week. You know, that affected her deeply. And that was only a short time, maybe a decade uh, after LaVey had made sure that this film should be out again. So yeah, he was he was definitely uh, instrumental in having that out. That was one of the first movies, because I, I I, growing up, I wasn't a kid that was ever interested, in, and probably as an adult still, I'm not interested in super old movies. I just don't tend to watch them. Yeah. But yeah. when I saw that one, I, yeah. I feel like I watched it and had the same sense of wonder that maybe people did back in the 30s when they did when when sideshows were prevalent and you yeah. could go and pay your you know nickel to go see the the fat lady or the the yeah. Yeah. legless wonder or, you know who whatever you were looking at and it, in a way these people it was kind of good form because it was a way for some people that were unfortunately not going to be able to have a normal life to make yeah. a living yeah, but exactly. but this movie though is about these people being like they win in the end <laughs> you yeah. know one of us yeah, yeah, yeah. one of us and <laughs> exactly i think even exactly. if you haven't seen the movie you can you can say one of us and know where it came from but yeah i that just that and that did it made a lasting imprint on me and I, it's one I would watch over and over again to this day. It, it was so Hi. cool, and the and the actors and everybody, and and then the the, the quote freaks. I, yeah. One of the thing watching your documentary also led me to something I had. I can't believe I've never come across this guy's work, but William Mortensen. Yeah, and that he had an influence on Anton Lavey. And if anybody, any listener out there, go Google Mort, William Mortensen photography. And I think you're going to be blown away by what you yeah. see. This, yeah. and, and the guy, I've, I read a little bit about him that he's not even really taken seriously 
in the photography world to this day and he's enjoyed like a renaissance and of course i have yeah. the book american grotesque in my yeah. my yeah. amazon basket right now <laughs> uh, but yeah. that that guy is like another creative that was like holy cow where your imagination was amazing mm -hmm. absolutely no he is like beyond belief he was so good but but he was one of those you know kind of definitely a satanic character because he was sort of um not out of the loop but he was so odd and outside he did a lot of you know commercial work but he did work a lot for for uh movie studios taking portraits and stuff but he always had this he was an artist so he added his own weird stuff and then of course he had his own projects where he added even more weird stuff and it's it's amazing it's like uh, real artists are people who create their own world and then show it to the rest of the world and then they can say oh i don't like it or you could say oh i love it mm -hmm. that that's for 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 that's not their thing to decide but he was certainly a great thing uh, artist but the thing is that he also wrote a lot about theory and he made these um he wrote these sort of photographic manuals almost this is how you do this this is how you light this kind of scene so it's kind of technical but at the same time there are many things and that's it wasn't only the pictures that affected lave it was the books and you might add another book to uh, to your amazon basket <laughs> it's called the command to look by mortensen the command to look um, and and this also has an essay uh, about how that affected lave and his philosophy and his magical thinking because there it's about lighting again a stage set design um, and also an image when an image becomes disturbing it's all about uh, geometry and composition and that affected lave a lot to the degree that he integrated these thoughts in his actual philosophy. Some of the thoughts are even in the first two books, you know, Satanic Bible and Satanic Rituals that came out in 69. That, again, that's what makes him so unique. He took these cultural things and wove them in to his magical system. It wasn't some old, dusty, you know, grimoire from medieval times where you could mm. evoke a demon, whatever. Uh, it was stuff that had affected him as a human being, whether it be forgotten musical tunes from the 1920s uh, or the, the uh, geometrical photographic designs of William Mortensen uh, or things like the movie Freaks or, you know, some other forgotten composer or certain actors that always delivered proto-satanic uh, performances. So that, he, that was his cauldron, as I call it. He put things in his cauldron, uh, very, very different things from other occultists at the time. What do you hope people take away from your book and film on Anton LaVey? Well, I, I hope for many things. First of all, that it will reach a great many people because I think many people are, are curious about LaVey. Uh, I um, did not want to extend the sort of biographical thing. Uh, thought about that. Maybe I should write a biography, but there already is a great biography written by Blanche Barton, who was his, his partner for a long time. Uh, but as I had made the film, uh, as I said, I called it like the, the precursor to the book, uh, I had a lot of footage from, you know, the interviews, the people I had talked to uh, that didn't fit the film because, simply because of the limitations of the film format. So I thought, I'm going to have all of these transcribed and look at it and see, maybe ask some additional questions. So that's what I did. And then I thought, will it be interesting 
enough to only anthologize these interviews. No, I need to make it more personal. I need to contextualize it. And that's why I have like four or five chapters in the beginning where I tell my story, how I ended up there, what we did, you know, the movie thing and the music thing and the people who had inspired him. So that's in a way biographical. Uh, but I do hope that it'll be a successful book, of course. It's a, it's a fun read, I've heard, and people like it. But I also hope for it to be perhaps the spark of, of someone writing, um, you know, some kind of biography, because this is like a gold mine in terms of um, what you call in anthropology or in, in uh, whatever social sciences, like this first-hand information. It's yeah. like uh, people who were there who give their recollections about the man and what happened. So that's something for, for future generations to possibly uh, use as fodder in their studies. That's what I hope for. Well, Carl, thank you so much for yes, being on our show. So much. If you, even if you're not a fan of Anton Lavey, you can be a fan of Carl because Carl has done so much <laughs> more than Anton Lavey. He has so much out there written. I'm holding another book in my hand that is fantastic called "A Culture: The Unseen right. Forces That Drive Culture Forward." Yeah. Um, he's got other films. You even have a podcast that you just started, right? That's right, Trapartisan Radio. I have a book publishing company called uh, Trapar, and I thought that, well, you know, every guy, every girl has their own podcast. You know, I should have one too. <laughs> so, so I just created this thing because there's so much, you know, the books that I publish, you know, some of it is occult, some of it is occultural, some of it has to do with art and poetry. But all of these people who write these books, they, they, uh, they need some kind of outlet to talk about their work. So that's why I created that podcast. Awesome. We're going to link course, all that yeah, up, of course, All of it will be linked site. up, wow. and we encourage yeah. you to go seek Carl out, stalk him, follow him on social media, listen to everything he's done. Yes. Uh, you won't be disappointed. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. Thank you. Ghostly Talk! <laughs>